Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. It continues to be amazing and wonderful and feeling so blessed to be able to be together and to be able to learn Torah in person. Grateful for the opportunity to also share it more broadly and more widely for those who cannot be here in person. But of course, if you can, we love to and long to see you. This is a very special edition of the Parsha Perspectives for today because today is the first site of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Zechitzadlik Levrocha. Harav Yaakov Tzvi ben David Aryeh. And uh, the Rabbi Sachs Legacy Foundation has asked us and included us in programs and events around the world that are commemorating this first year site by sharing Rabbi Sachs' Torah. What greater legacy is there for a person than promoting and sharing their Torah? His lips continue to quiver from the grave. He continues to teach, he continues to uplift, he continues to inspire. So today's entire shir is dedicated a partial perspective through the lens of Rabbi Sachs. And what we'll do is both talk about Rabbi Sachs and let Rabbi Sachs talk to us through sharing his Torah on our Parsha. But I want to begin by thanking our generous sponsors, the series for the year, Becky and Avi Katz, and family in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, David ben Menachem Manish, and the Shema Shedavan Aliyah. This morning's shir is also sponsored by Rabbi Willie Esther Yaakov and Yair Balk in memory of their mother and grandmother, Sheila Radman Balk, Shane Dofegabas Akiva, the Shema Shedavan Aliyah, and Rabbi Willie should find a lot of comfort. Also dedicated by friends of the Torah Suites newsletter. Very new newsletter that just came out. I saw it. Looks wonderful. Sign up for it. Be inspired by it. Thought-provoking articles by great Torah thinkers of today. You could subscribe at TorahSuites.com. T-O-R-A-H-S-W-E-E-T-S. TorahSuites.com. TorahSuites.com. Go online and sign up. A beautiful new newsletter. And lastly, by Bela Gila Grimberg in loving memory. The yurt site of her father, Yonah ben Yitzchak, Jerome Greenberg, on his fifth yurt site, the 23rd of Cheshvan, is Neshama Shadav Aliyah. Thank you to our generous sponsors. So we're now a year since we lost her by Sachs. And it continues to be truly a devastating loss. A loss of who he was as an individual, as a person, a loss of what he represented in this world, the light with which he illuminated the world, not just the Jewish world, but the entire world around us. And the loss, not only what was, but when I think about the devastating loss of Rabbi Sachs, I don't only think about who he was as an individual that he's no longer here. I don't only think about the valuable contribution he made, the legacy he leaves with his magnificent Torah, his books, his articles, his teachings. But to me, I feel utterly bereft, entirely denied decades more of what he was going to be of what he had yet to teach, what he had yet to share, the difference he had yet to make in this world. He was a spokesperson for Torah Jewry, maybe a singular exclusive fashion. There was no one like him. His erudition and his scholarship, his capacity to uh, communicate and to transmit authentic true Torah values to a general broad Jewish and non-Jewish audience, to be uncompromising in what we believe and where we're from, and yet at the same time, find a vocabulary and a vernacular that makes it something so richly uh, uplifting to everyone in contemporary times, we, we needed him desperately. Who else would debate the atheists and agnostics of our time the way Rabbi Sachs did? You could go online on YouTube and go watch videos where Rabbi Sachs takes on what are considered the greatest minds of atheists and agnostics, of skeptics and cynics, and only a Rabbi Sachs who could quote the width and breadth of Torah and simultaneously of general knowledge and scholarship, we are bereft, we are orphaned of that leadership that he provided. And on this first Yerot site, we feel it. We feel it as we have such beautiful and deep Torah to dip into. But for the next years and decades, he was such a young man. What we are being denied and what we are being deprived, what we had yet to learn, and what he had yet to stand up for, and how he had yet to represent us, and how absolutely painful, painful that is. You know, the parsha, the Torah tells us that when Sarah dies, we begin on page 106 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. I always encourage you to have a Chumash in front of you to follow inside. These are the life of Sarah, 100 years and 20 years and 7 years. We spoke about it last year. We speak about it every year. The parsha is the same every year. Torah does not efficiently deliver the years of her life as 127. It breaks it down. Her whole life was equal. And we spoke a lot about that last year. She dies very suddenly. She dies very abruptly. 
And Avram finds out, he returns from the Akedah, he learns of her demise. Avram comes, and what does he do? He delivers a eulogy. And only then does he cry. And of course, all the commentators note it's out of order. A person is devastated. I got a horrific call from one of our members yesterday, whose brother, who was healthy and well, suddenly dropped dead out of nowhere. A horrific, terrible tragedy. But when I answered the phone, he couldn't speak. I heard wailing, I heard crying, I heard moaning. He couldn't speak until he was able to compose himself to tell me he had just received a call about his beloved brother. Normally a person is devastated by news. Liv Koso, we cry, we cry, and then we compose ourselves in order to compose a eulogy. We put ourselves together in order to author a tribute. So why is Avram here? It almost seems callous. It almost seems as if Avram is not moved. Why isn't he crying? Why isn't he broken? This is his other half. Arguably, this is his better half. Avram goes on to live for almost four more decades. And if Salvechik points out, we don't hear any more contributions from Avram. When he loses Sarah, he's done. Not only does a piece of him missing, he is missing. He is incomplete to the point that he's no longer making contributions as a leader. Avram's contributions end with Sarah's loss in this world. And yet, almost callously, He's able to sit down without shedding a tear. He writes a eulogy, and only afterwards does he find the time to cry. What's going on? So Rasalovichik points out that there were two components to Sarah's loss. There was the individual Sarah that Avram had lost, a wife, a mother of his child, a life partner. But there was also Sarah Imenu, Sarah the matriarch. There was the role that she filled, not only in her time, but in perpetuity. Avram understood that his primary mission was to first communicate and capture that loss of who she was as a matriarch, the Sarah who is Imenu. And so he composed himself in order to author a eulogy that would capture her significance, her relevance, her legacy to the world. She with him went out and transformed and revolutionized the world. asu It doesn't say the souls that Avram changed, it's the souls that they changed together collaboratively, in partnership. She was with him. She was a greater prophetess than he was a prophet. He was lost without her. He understood her role in this world. And first and foremost, before he cried, before he grieved, before he moaned for what that loss meant for him as an individual, he paused to recognize and acknowledge her role more broadly. He composed the eulogy and only then did he cry, says Rabbi Soloveitchik. And I would argue the same is true for us even a year later with Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Lord Sachs, of course, as the individual, was a person who was sensitive and warm and kind. He was a very special person. I don't pretend to have known him very well, but I feel extraordinarily honored and privileged to have known him at all. He was in our community for Shabbos. He spoke here several times and we had a very warm relationship which was a tremendous chus, a great privilege for me, including shortly before he died during Corona. We did a panel together under the OU online, but much more significantly for me personally, we went through a difficult time as a public personality, being publicly attacked by someone at one point. My phone rang out of nowhere, and it was Rabbi Sachs's soothing voice of solace, giving me chizek, lifting me up, and it meant the world to me that he had made the time to make that phone call as an individual, as a private person. But in the, aside from his role as a husband, as a father, each remarkably, his role, what he meant collectively for all of us and for the non-Jewish world, for the BBC and for, for the UK and for royalty who wrote about him, prime ministers of the United Kingdom of Great Britain who wrote the most generous and the most beautiful tributes to him. We recognize and we feel absolutely bereft of that role that he had much more broadly. I saw a second interpretation of what does it mean, it wasn't Avram being callous by first writing a eulogy and only crying. It's that human nature, common sense, is the opposite order. First we cry, we grieve, we mourn, and then we're able to compose ourselves to write a eulogy. What happened? There's an exception. That's in the normal course of events when we lose someone that we anticipated losing. But when we lose someone so abruptly, so suddenly, feeling out of nowhere, then we almost can't generate the tears yet because we refuse to believe it. So all we can do is intellectually or academically try to make sense of it and try to write a tribute. And then when we realize the impact, when we feel the punch in our gut, that's when the tears will flow later. 
For most of us, even though we knew, we were warned and we were cautioned and we were asked if we could daven for Rabbi Sachs, we were told he was sick. This was the second bout of cancer in his life. We were davening for him, but nobody knew, other than his closest, closest circle, including his family, nobody knew just how dire the circumstances were. And for us, for Klai Yisrael, for the world, it felt like the news of his death came out of absolute nowhere. For us, all we could do was lispode and then livkos. All we could do was first try to give a tribute and then later cry. But it occurred to me, and I've been wondering and curious for the entire last year, and I've asked some people who were very close with him, why do we think he did it that way? Why didn't Rabbi Sachs offer a commentary to the world as his health was failing? Why weren't we warned just how dire the circumstances were so that we could storm the gates of Shemayim? Why did he keep it so private and so quiet? We learned so much from him in his lifetime. I'm so eager to learn and how he, choose to, how he chose to die as well. And of course, we don't have that opportunity to ask him directly. So essentially all we can do is guess and conjecture. But I think even this is a tribute to who Rabbi Sachs was. Rabbi Sachs was a person of modesty and humility who didn't crave attention and only entered a public stage because he thought he had what to share as an agent and ambassador of Hashem. So he didn't want the attention that it would bring, number one. But I think even more poignantly, number two, with all of his public acclaim, Rabbi Sachs essentially defined himself as a husband and as a father and a grandfather. He was unbelievably devoted to his family. And he knew that the attention it would draw would make it even more complicated and difficult and painful for his family. And I can only guess that he put his family ahead of himself, that whatever solace or comfort it would have brought him to know that the world was davening for him, that the way he did it privately perhaps was more protective because he lived his life protecting, protecting his family. When Avram comes in order to negotiate for this piece of land, the Torah tells us that Avram engages B'nai Ches, the people of Ches, Ephron Hachiti, according to Rabbi Yonah, this was the tenth and final test, to have to deal with this used car salesman, to deal with this low-life Oisvarf Ephron, who presented himself one way as magnanimous and generous, but really was, we know, ruthless and duplicitous. And Avram doesn't lose his cool. He's a broken man, devastated by the loss of his wife. He should have absolutely no patience for such an individual, but Avram never loses his cool. He's even killed. Avram is somebody whose midos always come first, and that's true here, even in this 10th test, that he passes just like the rest of them, says Rabbeinu Yonah, in the way he engages, the way he encounters Ephron Hachiti. But when he presents himself and argues for why he deserves and wants this plot of land, and we'll get into a moment a brilliant insight of Rabbi Sachs, of the significance of Avram buying this land, not just to have a burial place for his wife, but in a much more meta, broader sense. But when Avram introduces himself, he says the famous words that I believe are iconic words, Ger kever Who am I? Why should you sell to me? You own this land, I'm an outsider. Who am I to come and to ask, to demand, to negotiate for that land? And he uses two terms to describe himself. Two, in some ways, conflicting or opposite terms. He says, I am simultaneously ger vitoshav. I am at the same time a stranger and I live among you. And I've shared this insight of Rav Soloveitchik with you a thousand times and I'll share it a thousand more because I think it defines who we are meant to be in this world. And I don't care which part of the spectrum of Torah jury you find yourself. I don't care how much you retreat and insulate versus how much you engage. Every one of us needs to define ourselves. That's the legacy of Avram Avinu. We are the children, the offspring, the spiritual progeny. And these two words define the way we engage and we encounter the world. And listen to what Rabbi Soloveitchik says on them because he might as well be writing a eulogy. Obviously Rabbi Soloveitchik long predeceased Rabbi Sachs, but he might as well be describing the great Rabbi Lord Sachs. Says the Rav, what is our position vis-a-vis -vis modern civilization? with respect to science, to Western culture, to the countries in which we live. The answer is enshrined in these words. Certainly I am a resident. I'm one of you. I engage as business as you do. I speak your language. I take full part in your social economic institutions. But at the same time, I am a stranger. And in some aspects, a foreigner. I belong to a particular world, one that is completely foreign to you. It is a world in which I am at one with the Creator. It is a world populated by characters unknown to you with a tradition you do not understand, with spiritual values that seem impractical in your eyes. Pragmatic children of Ches, 
It is a world full of altars and sacrifices, a world of Torah, of loving kindness, of sanctity and purity. You live differently, pray differently. Your conception of charity is different from ours. Your days of rest are different, and so on. In these matters, I'm a stranger in your world, and you are a stranger in mine. Jewish burial is one of the elements with respect to which we are strangers and foreigners to one another. A Jew dies and is buried differently. A Jew requires a cemetery of his own, a Jewish grave. Rabbi Soloveitchik, long, long ago, and long before Rabbi Sachs really hit the Jewish scene, was describing Rabbi Sachs, Ger v'toshav anochi machem. On the one hand, I'm a toshav. I am well-steeped, well-knowledge, well-versed in your sciences, in your literature, in your language, in your culture. I'm one of you. I live among you. I participate, I contribute, I take away, I draw from. I'm a full member of your society. I'm a Toshav. Rabbi Rabbi Sachs was a Toshav, not only of Great Britain, of the UK, of the whole Western world, a spokesperson of the Western world. He spoke that language, was steeped in its culture, understood the best of it was educated and was an educator. And we know how many degrees and honorary degrees and how many books and how he was knighted in the House of Commons. We know all of his accomplishments. But at the same time, Rabbi, Rabbi Sachs had absolutely no problem living Rabbi Soloveitchik's insight. He was a Toshev, a full resident, but he was a Geir. He also understood that he was a member of a society of culture, of high culture, not pop culture. He understood it was Jewish values, not the secular values. He sought to elevate the conversation, not to lower himself to be part of it. He was uncompromising in being a gear, in saying when our values are in conflict, when they're not in consonance, when they don't work together. He was the living embodiment of this insight of Rav Zalavechik, of Avram's iconic and immortal words that he said to B'nai Ches and that we say to the society around us. And my own editorial comment I will say here is that there are generations in which the Jewish people failed to emphasize enough one of these elements. They said, you know what, I'm not a Toshev. Perhaps we live too much in retreat. We live too much in insulation. We have to contribute, participate, draw from, be part of society. But then there are generations in which we are too assimilated, too integrated. We forget that we are Geirim. We forget we're foreigners and we're strangers. We forget that as much as we have in common, we are categorically different. And to not confuse who we are, where we come from, and what our destiny is, necessarily with those around us. It is that balance, that critically important balance, that equilibrium, which too often through our history and at different periods and different times and different places was out of whack and out of balance. It is having spokespeople like Rabbi Sachs, who even if we were not knowledgeable, you know, sometimes, again, I'm just reflecting personally here, sometimes you just felt comforted to know that Rabbi Sachs exists. Someone much smarter than me, who knows much more, who speaks that language, who could answer those skeptics, who could triumph in a debate. I don't have to watch it or listen to it. I don't have to be the one doing it. I just sleep well at night knowing that he exists. I feel blessed to be in a generation that had him. I'm comforted and I'm strengthened and I have a confidence to know that he's there. And that's what his loss means, that he isn't anymore. And we can't turn to him. We could turn, turn to what he left us, the full body that he left us, but we can no longer turn to him. And therefore that loss is tremendously, tremendously painful. Before we really dive into the parasha, I just want to leave you with one more thought in tribute to him. And then we'll continue to study mostly from him, his insights on this first year site. That's how we elevate his neshama the greatest. When we continue to quote somebody's Torah, that's how we really lift their spirits. I spoke with a young man from our community a few years ago, before Rabbi Sachs was even sick or we knew it, who identifies as a Jew, was a staunch Zionist, even served in the Israeli army, but had left an observant life. And I engaged this individual to whom I have a long-standing relationship. He grew up in our community since he was a small child. And I tried to pull every trick out of my toolbox, every uh, tool, to try to engage, to encounter, to provoke, to stimulate, to challenge, to get him to reconsider a Torah-observant life. And I was an absolute and utter failure. But in it, before I was willing to concede defeat, I asked him, I said, is there anything that would change your mind? What do you think would do it? We were having an intellectual debate about parts of Judaism that he was deeply troubled by. He wasn't simply abandoning out of teavon. It wasn't simply out of desire or lust. He had intellectual challenges with Yiddishkeit. And he said to me, quote, the only person in the universe who I think could inspire me to keep Shabbos again is Rabbi Sachs. If I met him and could talk to him, 
I can't imagine that I wouldn't feel obligated to return to an observant life. I actually tried to put the two of them together unsuccessfully. But that tells you so much right there. It tells you an enormous amount. It tells you an enormous amount. Um, in 2019, Rabbi Sachs gave what was the last slichos drasha in uh, London, in the Hampstead Synagogue, September 21st, 2019. And as everything, it was brilliant and it was insightful and it was elevating. For me, it was also deeply uh, meaningful because in it, I didn't know this. Somebody sent me and alerted me to it. In it, he referenced the conversation that he and I had, not by name. He writes, or he said, this was uh, transcribed and it was published in the last Hamizrahi. This past Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, Mizrahi puts out a beautiful little magazine called Hamizrahi. And in it, they had an unforgiving age from Rabbi Sachs which was his pre-Slichos address in 2019. And in it he says, this is what Slichos are all about. About being honest, about saying, Master of the universe, I know I let you down, I know I let others down, I know I let myself down. Shema koli, hear my cry. Help me become the person you created me to be. And then he continues. He says, a few years ago, I was about to lecture 1,000 people in a big shul in America. Now getting 1,000 Jews to sit down is as hard as splitting the Red Sea. So the rabbi of the shul said to me, Rabbi, we've got 10 minutes before we begin. Every week I do the local Jewish radio program. Would you do a quick interview with me? I said, fine. We went into a study, just the two of us, and this is what he asked me. I was that rabbi. Maybe some of you were here. We had a thousand people. We had an amazing, amazing event with Rabbi Sachs. It wasn't for a weekly radio program. It was before Behind the Bima was even a dream. It was before Corona. But I had always thought we have these great people who come to the community. If I recorded a conversation, that would one day be of interest. And I recorded this conversation in, uh, in 2018. January 18th, 2018. And then it just sat in a file. I never did anything with it until after Rabbi Sachs passed away. And then I published it online, the conversation, this interview with him. So Rabbi Sachs recalls that conversation. And he says, Rabbi Sachs, he's quoting me now asking him, I look at your CV, I look at your career. Tell me Rabbi Sachs, did you ever fail at anything? I almost fell out of my chair laughing. I said I have failed at almost everything. My favorite sentence in the English language is Winston Churchill's definition of success, going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. I tried to explain to the rabbi that the real difference is not between failure and success. The real difference is between failing and giving up and failing and keeping on going. That's the real difference in life and it's what keeps me going. I explained is the simple knowledge that God lifts us up when we fail, fall and forgives us when we fail. And then he ended that Slichos Drasha, I have one request. Forget the public persona of perfection that people post in social media. Know that the inner reaches of our soul, we can be honest with ourselves. We can acknowledge the way in which we failed because we know that God forgives. And in the forgiveness, God gives us strength to heal that we have, what we have harmed, to men that we have broken, to become the people He wants us to be. Now that interview also was transcribed, January 18, 2018. And the last comment I'll say in our introduction is to quote from that transcript. Because I began, and I asked Rabbi Sachs the following. You can listen to online this whole interview, but I'll just read to you a little bit. You're a beacon of faith, you promote faith, you teach faith, you inspire faith, not only among the Jewish community, Jewish people around the world. Do you ever struggle with faith, I asked him. Do you ever feel that you confront doubt? And in those moments of uncertainty, what do you do to overcome it? What do you do to overcome it? Now, I didn't, I didn't build into the question, but I know that Rabbi Sachs, and I knew then, I didn't know he had a second bout of cancer as we sat in my study in my home, January 18th, 2018. It was a, a little reception before we came here, a thousand people for a big event. I remember vividly that uh, it was a federation hosted it at our home, and there was a beautiful reception. And someone was walking around offering martinis, and Rabbi Sachs mentioned he had never tried one. He thought he might as well have one. And he drank it, we did the interview, and then he had trouble holding on to the lectern when he was delivering. I still feel guilty that he said his mind was racing due to that l'chaim that we shared before this interview. So I didn't know it was a second bout of cancer, but I knew he had faced cancer, and I knew that he had challenges in his life. And so I asked him, did he ever have doubt in faith? And listen to what he said. Note this is January, and it's not a coincidence. What parsha did he reference? Chaye Sarah, the Parsha in which his neshama left this world, and today his first Yeritzite, that we offer this tribute to him. He said, let me be very blunt with you. I've had many crises in faith, but I've never had a crisis of faith in a Kodesh Baruch Hu. I've had many crises of faith in man. One crisis began as soon as I began to understand the Holocaust, to understand it took place in the heart of civilized Europe, not some third world country in some medieval 10th century. The biggest question of faith I had was, knowing all this was going to happen, how come a Kodesh Baruch Hu had faith in us? 
I never lacked faith in him because I never expected the impossible from him. I know perfectly well that he placed each of us here for a purpose and we are supposed to discern that and to walk ahead. For me, the critical moment that defined my faith was achieved when I learned Parshas Chayesara. January, he's talking about Parshas Chayesara. It begins with the death of Sarah. There is Avram, having lost his life companion at the age of 137. At that point, he has received from Hashem three promises. Number one, I will give you land. Number two, I will give you children. I will make you a great nation, as many as the stars in the skies that sand the sea. And finally, I will make you not one nation, many nations, but he only has one son. Where was the father of many nations? Where was the infinite number of descendants? What did Avram do at that moment when he should have had a crisis of faith? He understood that God said, walk on ahead of me. So he bought the first plot of land. He then made sure his son got married so he would have Jewish grandchildren. And later in a strange episode, he takes an additional wife named Keturah, has six more children who become the father of many nations. In other words, concluded Rabbi Sachs this first question, instead of expecting God to do for him, Avram realized God was expecting him to do the hard work for him. Once I understood that, I never had a crisis of faith. What a legacy. What a beautiful insight. And that's the first point I want to elaborate on is that insight of Rabbi Sachs. And I draw from his magnificent covenant and conversation published today as books, but many articles that you could find online. You can learn with Rabbi Sachs each and every week. Many of you do. I look out, I'm trying to daven or give a drasha, and you're looking down, I don't blame you. Much more worthwhile, you're reading for many years the printouts from Rabbi Sachs, rather than listening to rabbis around the world, we don't blame you. But you continue to read and print out online. And Rabbi, Sal- Rabbi Sachs on our parsha says the following. He says the central theme of our parsha are two episodes, both narrated at length and both offered in intricate detail. And we know the real estate of the Torah is precious, more valuable even than Montoya's circle, as hard as that is to believe right now. And yet, and yet, particularly the second episode of Eliezer going to look for a wife for Yitzchak is offered, it is repeated at length. It is verbose, it is redundant, it is lengthy. Why? The Torah's real estate is precious. So summarize. Succinctly give me the summary of the story. And instead the Torah, these two episodes, a plot of land, a negotiation. Is this trying to capture the original Jewish business attitude, ethics, skill set. Why? Avram buys this field, a cave, burial place, and he instructs his servant to find a wife. Why these two events? So the easy answer is because they happened. Torah recounts and recalls history. They happened. Torah is a document that is transmitting our history. So it tells us they happened because it's part of our history. But Rabbi Sachs rejects that. He says that is not possible. We misunderstand the Torah if we think it's a book that simply tells us what happened. A lot more happened, it never tells us. We are first introduced to Avram, we begin his life at what age? 75. So, if it was a history book, it should tell us, first his mother got pregnant. What kind of pregnancy did she have? Was he active in the womb? Was he calm? Tell us about the labor. It skips and omits significant parts of the story where the Medrash, of course, fills in in between the lines. But the Torah is not a history book. And the Torah is not simply recalling or recounting what happened. Torah, by identifying itself as Torah, defines its own genre, says Rav Sachs. It is not a history book. Torah, hora'a, or, means light. It is a book of teaching. Everything in the Torah is there because it is meant to teach. It is meant to transmit, not something that happened or history, but something much more lofty. So if it's sharing something that happened, it's because there's something deeper in it. So what is it that is deeper in these two episodes? An entire parsha, Chaye Sarah. And if you have to summarize Chaye Sarah, two episodes. Avram negotiated a piece of real estate, Shkoyach. Avram sent out a shirach for his son, Yitzchak. Eliezer was in charge. Shkoyach. I would have said that's got to be the shortest parsha in the Torah. Negotiating a piece of real estate? Okay, how long could that be? And why would you tell me? Shduchim? Okay, that could take up a lot more time and a lot more room. <laughs> but fine. Eliezer went. They made a shidduch. They closed the shidduch. They paid the shadchanas. They called it even. They called it a day. How could it be that it's so long? So says Rabbi Sachs the following. Listen carefully because this is brilliant. It's beautiful and it's important. Avram, the first bearer of the covenant, was given two promises by Hashem, and both were stated five times. What were those two promises that Hashem kept repeating to Avram? Five times! By the way, if you're God, you're probably good at your word. One time should be good enough. So if God repeats the promise five times, why is He repeating it? Not for Avram, 
if God makes you a promise, you should be good to go. It's God Almighty. He delivers on His word. Baruch Omer Vaosa. Baruch Gozer Umakayim. Last night we hit the 300th Siddur snippet. A little shameless plug for Siddur snippets. You can go back to number one was Moda'ani and catch up. We're at 300. We're in the middle of Shema. But somewhere early on in there is Baruch Sha'amar. Baruch Omer Vaosa. Baruch Gozer Umakayim. Hashem says, and He does. He's Gozer and He's Makayim. He fulfills what He said He was going to do. You can listen on podcasts, on, on the website. You can get a WhatsApp with the Siddur snippet every day. So Hashem only needs to say it once. Why do you say it five times? Baruch Atah Adunai, Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, She'akol, Niyeh Bidvaro. Why five times? Because clearly he means to emphasize, not the promise, he's good at his word, but he needs to emphasize the significance of that which he is promising. What are the two things that he promised Avram five times? Again, let's prove to the people watching or listening that you were live here. Baruch Hashem, we're filling out more and more. No? Children? You're going to have children. You're going to have Enoch You're going to have... You're going to have continuity in this world. And what was the other promise? Eretz Yisrael, the land. Good. You guys have read the Chumash occasionally. I'm happy to hear that. First is the land. Time and again, he's told by God that the land that you've traveled, Kanaan, is yours. We could look at some of these psukim. Perak Yud Beis, Pasuk Zion is the first time. Beginning of Lech Lecha. Vayer Hashem al Avram lemar lezarach ha'etenis ha'aretz hazos. Lezarach ha'etenis, your offspring, I'm going to give this land. Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Dalad. Yud Gimel, Yud Dalad. Vashem Omar al Avram, split, go away. Ureim in amakum ha'sha'atasham, tzavon v'negu v'kam ha'keira, ki es kol ha'aretz ha'sha'ataro'eh. These words Torah made famous. They got them from the great singer Dedi. Look at this land. Et l'cha et nena. Es kol ha'aretz ha'sha'ataro'eh. This whole land that you see, l'cha et nena. I'm going to give it to you. Ulazarach ha'ad olam. Perak Tezvav Pasuk Zion, Perak Tezvav Pasuk Yedchas, Perak Yud Zion Pasuk Zion. It goes on and on. Hashem promises Avram no less than five times, this land is your land. Second promise is Kinderlach, Enoch children, grandchildren, continuity. Go to Perak Yud Beis, Pasuk Beis. Perak Yud Beis, Pasuk Beis. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have many children. Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk, Tes, Zion. Yud Gimel, Tes, Zion. V'samti azarecha ka'afar ha'aretz. Your offspring will number as great as the sands on the sea. Asher yuchal yishlam nos zafar ha'aretz. Just like you can't count. Gam zamach zarecha yimaneh. And again, the examples go on and on. Perak Tes, Vav, Pasuk, Hei. Perak Yud Zion, Pasuk, Dalet. Perak Chav, Beis, Pasuk, Yud Zion. Vaisaks counts them, did the hard work for us. Five times Hashem says, real estate, this land is yours. Five times He says, you're not going to leave this world without someone to say Kaddish for you. You're going to have a child after you. Remarkable promises. The land and its length and breath will be His, and you will have many children. Good. Now Sarah dies. Beginning of Pasha's Chaye Sarah. Vayama Sarah, Vayichaye Sarah, Sarah dies. Does Avraham have land? No. He's not a real estate holder. He does not own any land. Children? He's got one. He's got Yishmael, but he's already been told explicitly that Yishmael is not going to be the one who will carry the legacy forward. So how many children does he have within this context of his legacy, his continuity? How many children does he have? He has one. He has one. I was in an elevator yesterday with Yocheved when there was another couple and they were talking to each other and they were talking about somebody they know who has three children by the age of 36. Isn't that insane? So many children, such a young age, so crazy. And we looked at each other like, should we? Yeah, no, should we tell them? <laughs> they said, nah. And we just walked out of the elevator. But Baruch Hashem, Kenai Nahara, Buliai Nahara, a billion times over, people have been blessed to have large families. Nothing that anyone should ever take for granted. Count those blessings each and every single day. Large families. And if you do the multiplier effect, if you have a lot of children, and please God, they'll have a lot of children, they'll have a lot of children, you can within your lifetime be a great grandparent or a great, great grandparent to hundreds, to thousands. The numbers are, are astonishing. So Avram, who's given this promise, you're going to be many, you're going to be great, you're going to be an enormous number, and, and Hashem has if toys with Avram. Come, come, come outside. Come, give a cook, give a look. 
You see the stars? Wow. You're going to have so many stars. Your children, you're not even going to be able to count. Come, come to the beach. Come with me for a moment. You see the sand? Pick up a little bit in your hand. The grains, just in your hand. Forget the whole length of the beach. Just in your hand. You see the sand? Can you count them? No. That's going to be your children. Now Sarah dies. And Avram said, what happened to the stars? What happened to the sand? What happened to Eretz Yisrael? What happened to my real estate? What happened to the land? He's no Rothschild. It's not JNF. He's not, what happened? He doesn't own land and he has one child who, by the way, he came this close to slaughtering. Who, by the way, also is 37 years old and Nebuch no Shidduch. So Avram says to himself, he owns no land and he only has one son. son. Says Rabbi Sachs, now you understand all of Parshat Chayi The significance of the two episodes in Parshat Chayi are are 100% now clear. Why? Because it's all about what Avram does next. It's all about what Avram does next. Listen to me very carefully because this is the story of the Jewish people. It's the story of Rabbi Sachs, both his Torah, and it's also the charge that he leaves us with, telling us what we need to do next. First, what does Avram do? So if I'm Avram, I throw in the towel, I'm depressed, I'm resentful, I'm bitter, I'm negative, I'm angry. Hashem, what happened to all these promises? I'm an old man, I just lost my wife, my better half, I own no land, and I have only one son, and he's not married. What does Avram do instead? Vayakam me'al p'nei me'sel. Versax doesn't point this out, but others do the word vayakam. What does it mean to get up? I think that this has entered our vernacular. What do you call it when you're done with shiva? Someone loses a loved one and they sit shiva. What do they say? What do we say about them? Oh, I didn't get paid a shiva call. Do you know when they? Why would you ask when they get up? That's true, they sit in a low stool, so you're getting up. They get up a lot during shiva. They get up to eat. They get up to go to the bathroom. They get up to go to sleep. They get up to daven. They're getting up out of that low chair, but we only call it getting up at the end of shiva. Why do we call it getting up from shiva? We learn from Avram. Vayaka me'al meso. Because when the Jew is down, the Jew doesn't stay out. The Jew, Vayakam, we get up. We get up, we persevere, we tenaciously continue. In fact, how do we come out of Shiva? I tell this to every person I walk out of Shiva. We go for a walk. Where does it say that in Shulchan Aruch? Nowhere. Where does it say in the Gemara? Nowhere. It is entirely and utterly a minhag. There are different minhagim. Some turn the chair upside down when you're done with Shiva. I think Chabad breaks something on the floor. Any Chabad here? Chabad is a minute, I think, to break something on the floor. There's all kinds of interesting minhagim, but one of the universal ones is to go for a walk. Why do you go for a walk? Because we see the grass is growing and the garbage is being picked up and life has to continue. And the significance of the symbolism of walking, we put one foot in front of the other. Physically, we have to put one foot in front of the other. And spiritually and metaphysically, vayakam, we have to put one foot in front of the other. We get up. That's how we do it. And that is Avram's legacy. He doesn't stay down and out when he loses Sarah. And he loses Sarah in tragic circumstances. We discussed last year, I'm not going to repeat this year. Sarah died. What was her cause of death on her, birth, on her death certificate? It wasn't cancer. And it wasn't high blood pressure. And it wasn't diabetes. She was shocked to death. And how was she shocked to death? When she heard what Avram almost did to her Yitzchak, she had a massive heart attack. She dropped dead from the news. Can you imagine the regret, the remorse, the guilt that Avram lived with? But he didn't stay down. He did not stay down. Vayakam Avram so Avram got up. And this is what Rabbi Sachs says. He says, first Avram undergoes a lengthy bargaining process to buy a field and a cave in which to bury Sarah in a tense, even humiliating encounter. They say one thing and they mean another. Ephraim, the owner of the field, wishes to buy. He says, listen, I'll give you the field, bury your dead. As the narrative makes clear, this elaborate generosity is a facade, extremely hard bargaining. Avram knows that he's an alien among them. He has no right to the land. You may not acquire it on your own. But Avram, says Rabbi Sachs, is not deterred. He insists he wants to buy his own. Ephraim says, it's yours, I'll give it to you. Is in fact a prelude to a demand for an inflated price. At last, however, Avram owns the land. The final transfer of ownership is recorded in precise legal prose to signal at last that Avram owns part of the land. It's a very small part of the land. It's a little field, it's a cave. But finally, Avram owns the land. And was it easy? Did it come miraculously? Did it fall into his lap? This is Rabbi Sachs, this is what he says is the Iker Nakuda here. This is the key point. It came at a great expense. It came after a difficult negotiation. It came after turmoil. And that is all the divine promise of the land that Avram will see in his lifetime. That's all that he gets to own is a cave in a field. 
He was told, walk the width and breadth of the land. It's going to be yours. But all he gets to actualize in his own lifetime is this little shtickle property, this little piece of real estate, this little cave and this little field. And even that, he had to arduously negotiate and purchase. The next parak, one of the longest in Chumash, tells of Avram's concern that, I, that Yitzchak find a wife, 37 years old, still unmarried. Avram has a child, no grandchild, no posterity, no promise of a future beyond Yitzchak if he's not married. And here again, does it come easy? It takes negotiation, it takes money, it takes trust. He has to send Eliezer out and away. He has to come, overcome Eliezer's instinct that Eliezer wants him to marry his own daughter. He has to secure Rivka's release because uh, Lavan rather pulls this whole uh, charade. It doesn't come easy. They have to pay him a lot of money, big dowry. And then finally, they're able to leave. Eventually, patience pays off. Rivka leaves. Yitzchak marries her. The covenant will continue. Listen to what Rabbi Sack says. These are then no minor episodes. They tell a difficult story. Yes, Avram will have a land. He will have countless children, but these things will not happen sooner, suddenly, or easily. Nor will they occur without human effort. To the contrary, only the most focused willpower will bring them about. The divine promise is not what it first seemed, a statement that God will act. It is in fact a request, an invitation from Hashem to Avram and his children that they should act. Hashem will help. The outcome will be what Hashem said it would, but not without total commitment from Avram's family against what will sometimes see to be insuperable obstacles. You understand what Rabbi Sachs is saying? The whole theme, the whole essence, the whole idea, the whole legacy of Avram is that yes, God made these two promises. He made them no less than five times. But when Hashem makes us a promise, He doesn't tell us to then become passive spectators to the fulfillment of that promise. He doesn't tell us it'll come easily. He doesn't tell us it'll come miraculously. He doesn't tell us the timetable with which it will come or how much of it we'll merit to see in our lifetime. Yes, that promise will come true, but the promise is an invitation as much as it is a promise. It is God's request to us to step up, to make the effort, to negotiate, to be willing to give capital, human capital, energy, emotion. It is we have to be His partner. A land, Israel and children, Jewish continuity. Writes Rabbi Sachs, the astonishing fact is that today, 4,000 years later, they remain the dominant concern of Jews throughout the world. Jews throughout the world, 4,000 years later, these are the two things that we still think about. The safety and security of Israel as the Jewish home and the future of the Jewish people. Will we have Jewish grandchildren and great-grandchildren? Are these not the universal to Jewish concerns 4,000 years later. Avram's hopes and fears are ours. Is there any other people I wonder, says Rabbi Sachs, whose concerns today are what they were four millennia ago? The identity through time is awe-inspiring. Now is then the divine promise does not mean that we can leave the future to Hashem. That idea has no place in the imaginative world of the first book of the Torah. To the contrary, the covenant is Hashem's challenge to us, not ours to God. The meaning of the events of Chayisar is not that Avram realized that Hashem was depending on him. Faith does not mean passivity. It means the courage to act and never be deterred. The future will happen, but it is we, inspired, empowered, given strength by the promise, who must bring it about. So when I saw this insight of Rabbi Sachs, now, now I understood what he was saying to me in that interview. When he referenced that God promised Avram these things five times, he never lost faith in God the moment he studied Parshas Chayesara. He was cryptically answering in the interview to me, but he elaborated more in this insight in his covenant and conversation, where his point is, you're right, if you're waiting for God, you'll lose faith in Him. But if you realize that God is waiting for you, He wants us to act, He wants us to partner, He is inviting us to bring about that future, that destiny, that reality, then we realize that it's not a question of our faith in God, it's a question of God's faith in us. How did he conclude? The meaning of the events of Chayesar is that Avram realized that God was depending on him. Faith does not mean passivity, the courage to act, it means to be de never deterred. The future will happen, but it is we, inspired, empowered, given strength by the promise, who must bring it about. Vayakam Avram Avram got up from his loss. He wasn't deterred. He wasn't fatigued. He didn't give up. Even though he had yet to see these two promises, he realized it was his responsibility. Rabbi Sachs comes back to that theme over and over. Almost every essay he has on Chaye Sarah, he comes back to that theme over and over, and he couples it, he complements it with different insights from secular uh, 
scholarship and stories, but he comes back to that theme over and over again. And is that not the Jewish story? Did we not recently live it following the Holocaust? The seventh million, the people who survived, who had lost their loved ones, they didn't sit passively, they didn't feel a promise was broken, they got up and they rebuilt. They rebuilt tenaciously, their sense of resiliency. We are only here because after each of these episodes of life, and in some ways I think that's our job, even after the loss on this first yard site, reflecting back of Rabbi Sachs, is not to wallow in that loss and not to wonder what could have been, but to pick up where he left off, to feel responsible, to continue his conversation, to continue his life, mission of Ger Toshav, to learn what he learned from the world, to contribute to that world, to be those agents and ambassadors of the world. Rabbi Sachs was one of the biggest Kiddush Hashem of our time, if not the greatest. I mean, who else would have Prince Charles, Prime Minister Blair, to Gedola Yisrael, to everyone in the world equally speaking about his greatness. He was a walking Kiddush Hashem. And instead of wallow in that loss, and instead of wonder of what could have been, our job is to pick up that mantle, to pick up the baton, and to keep going. And in that context, I'll share another insight. I've been sharing recently, Yibadol Chaim Tovim Ba'aruchim, Rabbi Cheskel Weinfeld, who's a great Rav in Ramada Shkol in Yerushalayim. My son-in-law Davin's at his shul. He's a big Tamachacham, he used to have a yeshiva, he has a kolal, he has a beautiful shul, and his Torah touches me very deeply. He happens to be a very fascinating uh, individual. And um, I'll, I'll share with you, you remember that Rabbi Sachs passed away the same week as Rav David Feinstein, Zechat Sadev Kodesh Levracha. Two devastating losses. Very, very different models of Jewish greatness, both great in their own right, different models of greatness. Rabbi Weinfeld's Hasidish Yid, he wears a strimal, he's a Hasidish Jew in Yerushalayim. And uh, on Shabbos morning after davening, there's a sit-down kiddush each week after davening. Weinfeld makes l'chaims, and he talks about events of that week, always in the context of the filter of Torah. Very powerful, very beautiful. I've enjoyed it, and I, I love hearing afterwards the divrei Torah from it. So I heard from several people who were there, including my son-in-law, that that week, after those two devastating losses, Rabbi Weinfeld sat down after davening with the shreimel and his talis, and after his chasidish davening in the shtibel, and he made his l'chaim, and he said, Chevra, Klai Yisrael suffered a loss this week of someone irreplaceable. Well, Klai Yisrael went, and everyone sitting in there thought, for sure he's going to speak about Rav David Feinstein. He went on and on about the irreplaceability of this individual, who they were in their greatness, what they meant to him, how much he learned from them, how broken he was. And who was that individual? Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. It threw everybody off. That was Rabbi Weinfeld felt that loss. And part of his greatness is the diversity of whom he appreciates. It was really um, very special to hear. So this wasn't a reflection on Rabbi Sachs, but Rabbi Weinfeld has the following very interesting insight. He says, you'll note there's a lot of overlap in our Parsha. We learn from the beginning of the Parsha, we learn the laws of marriage from the purchase of the, of the cave of the Machpelah. Kicha, kicha, miste Ephron. We know that one of the mechanisms to which a man can betroth a woman is Kesef. If he gives her something that is of minimal value, a Shavapruta, then through that, through her accepting it, people see this as degrading to the woman, that the man is giving it. It's not degrading. The man gives it, but she has to accept it. If she rejects it, they're also not married. He could put 400 rings on her fingers. He could put rings of billion dollar values on her fingers. But if she says, I don't have das, I don't accept it, I don't receive it, then they're not married. She could put a million rings on his finger and he can accept it and they're not married. That's why a double ring ceremony is not consistent with halacha. When I officiated a wedding and I understand that he's going to wear a ring, which halachically there's no problem with whatsoever, I always say, you give her the ring under the chuppah, she can give you the ring in the yichud room. She shouldn't give you the ring under the chuppah. We don't want to distort the halacha to suggest as if there is a halachic value to the double ring. There's only one ring which has value and it's not biased or discriminatory. He gives the ring, she has to receive the ring. Only if each do their part are they, are they married. Where do we learn that from? Because it says, Ki kach ish isha, if a man takes a woman. And here it says, kach mimenu, he took the field, he purchased, he acquired the field. So through giving money, you are betrothed. There is a transaction which took place and we apply that. We spoke last year, I'm not going to repeat, how utterly unromantic that is. There's nothing less romantic in the moment of betrothal than talking about death. Nothing less romantic. And yet, we learn the entire mechanism from the story of death. And there are beautiful, beautiful insights of why that is. Again, listen to last year's Parsha Shir, where I shared a few of them, several of them. But there are other similarities. We have, how many days does one sit Shiva? 
How many days do you have Sheva Brachas after a wedding? Seven days. In order to be able to eligible to say the Sheva Brachas, what do you need? You need someone, a Panam Chadashos. Someone has to attend the Sheva Brachas who wasn't at the wedding. How do you define Panam Chadashos? Why do you need Panam Chadashos? Shabbos is Panam Chadashos. Could give an hour shir on Panam Chadashos, a fascinating topic. But you need someone there who's at the Sheva Brachas who wasn't at the wedding. For that individual, it is a renewed sense of joy. And that's what generates her powers, reciting the Sheva Brachas. There's a special benching to be said in the house of mourning. We don't do it today. But the halacha was, when it was done, you needed Panam Chadashos. Someone who had not yet been there to comfort someone who was not at the, at the funeral. So you have all this overlap, seven and seven, Panam Chadashos, Panam Chadashos. We learn Kicha, Kicha, marriage from the purchase of the grave. What is this connection? What is all this overlap? So by Weinfeld, Shlita said the following. He says, Judaism views death very differently from the world around us. Others view death as being closure, as being final, as being the end of a chapter, the end of an era. Others view death as being only depressing and miserable. But Judaism sees death not as the end, not as the closure, not as the culmination. Judaism sees death as a point in a cycle. That's why we eat lentils, right? Yaakov felt fed Ace of the lentils that he had cooked for Yitzchak, who was mourning the loss of Avram. We eat an egg, the first meal, the Sudas of Ra. The mourner comes home and eats an egg, which is round. The image of the round of the cycle of life, death is not the end of a line. Death is a point on a cycle. It's the point on a circle. And it remind, reminds us that at the very moment that we mark and honor death, we also must celebrate life. And that's what Avram understood. He buries Sarah, and he gets up and he immediately focuses on Yitzchak getting married so the next generation can flourish. And this is the deeper lesson between burial and marriage, that we're meant to respond to death by building life. The greatest response to death is not to become debilitated, is not to become a person who can't move, but we take the memory of who we lost and now we make a commitment to build life and to make it flourish and blossom bigger and greater. We take that sad experience and it should fuel us to recognize the significance of those who are alive around us and to build a continuity, to build a beautiful and a bright Jewish future. That's what we're learning from Avram. That's what Avram did and that's the two episodes here in Parshas Chaye Sarah. Ooh, we could do a whole day tribute. And we're running out of time. What more should we talk about here? What more should we talk about? Okay, let's talk about another part of Avram, Avram's legacy that Rabbi Sachs notes, which I think is a reflection on Rabbi Sachs as well, and that is his commitment to chesed. He tells the story, Rabbi Sachs. I used this in a Shabbat Shuvah drasha many years ago, and I took it from one of Rabbi Sachs's great books. Rabbi Sachs was an author of countless books. He put out, he told me, in fact, when I, when I was once talking to him privately, it was, uh, it was around my 40th birthday, so it was several years ago, and I told him how um, unaccomplished I felt because I had yet to write a book. Baruch Hashem, I have the privilege to teach and share a lot of Torah, but I'd love to leave a book. I'd love to write a book. If there's a book worth writing, I'd love to share it. So he told me that the first book he wrote and published was, his, was only when he turned 40. He had tried countless times in that interview. You could listen later. I asked him, did you ever fail? When he laughed out loud, one of the points of failure that he recalled was how many times he tried to publish books before his 40th birthday that were all rejected by publishers. Right? We're all looking and wondering who were the publishers who rejected anything Rabbi Sachs had to write? Who were they? They should lose their publishing license. Who were those publishers? But he told me that he published his first book at 40 that part was interesting. The next part was overwhelming. He said, he said it just in passing. He said, I published my first book at 40 and I published a book every year since. Every year since. So he published one book a year. Now his books are not like a collection of my drushes of the year. I'm not knocking anyone who does that, but you give a drush every Shabbos, then you take your best of, you deliver it. It's a beautiful contribution. Rabbi Sachs' book are scholarship. Their research, they're well thought out. The thesis, science, religion, they're unbelievable. A book a year for decades after his 40th birthday. He told me then, he said, by your 40th book at birthday, I want you to write a book, send it to me, I'll review it and help you with it, I'll help you get it published. 
I'm turning 47 this year, and I have several books that I've written. The problem is, so far they're all only in my head. I've yet to actually write them. But I do remember his, his words echo in my ears all the time. He's written, I think, close to 30, close to 30 books by Sachs. But with that brilliance, what I want to focus on is that Rabbi Sachs was brilliant. Partly a gift by God. His genius was a gift by God. Part of it genetic, part of it given to him by God at birth. Much, most of it earned through hard work, through toil. But that's not what I want to focus on. What I want to focus on was his character. There are brilliant scholars, brilliant academics, brilliant Tamidei Chachamim, brilliant great men and women who when you come to know them and see them behind the scenes, one of the blessings of being the rabbi is that you get to host all the scholars in residence. One of the curses of being the rabbi is that you get to host all the scholars in residence. Because some of them, when you see them, when the lights and the camera are off, they surpass what you thought of them in public and you're blown away, you're inspired. What you see of them when no one's watching just makes you think they're even greater. Others, let's just say, not so. Rabbi Sachs belongs in that first category. And I think that his, his brilliance was surpassed only by his tremendous character, by the tremendous character of who he was and how he lived. And he makes this point in Parshas Chayisara when he talks about what Eliezer went to go look for in a wife for Yitzchak. But he tells a story to begin with, I don't, I don't, we don't have the time. I can't tell you the whole story. You can find it online. He quotes it from Stephen Carter. Stephen Carter is a professor at Yale University Law School, and he has a book called Civility. And Stephen Carter, an African-American, talks about when his family moved to Baltimore, and was the only uh, black family in a Jewish neighborhood, and they felt shunned and isolated and alone. But this observant Jewish woman came across the street. She had made goodies, a tray, drinks and cream cheese and jelly sandwich. She brought over to the children, made them feel at home, welcomed them. And he recalls this Yale law professor in his book, that he, he specifically identifies her, Sarah Kestenbaum. She died all too young. He adds, it's no coincidence she was a religious Jew. Quote, in the Jewish tradition, civility is called chesed, doing acts of kindness, which in turn derived from the understanding that human beings are made in the image of God. Civility, he says, itself may be seen as part of chesed. It indeed requires kindness towards our fellow citizens, the ones who are strangers, even when it is hard. To this day, I can close my eyes and feel on my tongue the smooth, slick sweetness of the cream cheese and jelly sandwich I got with in that summer afternoon when I discovered how a single act of genuine and unassuming civility can change a life forever. Rabbi Sachs quotes the story from Carter, that Yale professor. And then he goes on and he talks about, this is why Avram, when he sends Eliezer, and he arrives in Nahor, Aram Narayim, northwest Mesopotamia, to find a wife. Avram had not told him to look for any specific traits of character. He had simply told him to find someone who's part of his own family. Eliezer, however, comes up with this whole test. The one who's going to feed the camels in addition to him. The one who's going to show chesed. Eliezer doesn't say, I need a size two. I need to see a picture. Eliezer doesn't say, what's the yichus? Eliezer doesn't say, I need to speak to the pharmacist. What's in the medicine cabinet? Eliezer doesn't say any of the absolute insanity that people are looking for today. By the way, in all the shidduch questions I field, I don't remember anyone asking me, are her parents on the chesed committee? Do his parents volunteer for the chevra kadisha? I don't think that's on anyone's list of questions. It was on Eliezer's. It wasn't on his list of questions. It was his singular question. His one question was, does she do chesed? Loving kindness, sensitive, does she care? Rabbi Sachs points out it's also the theme of the book of Rus, her kindness to Naomi and Boaz to Rus, that Tanakh seeks to emphasize in sketching the background to David, their great grandson, who would become Israel's greatest king. Indeed, Chazal say the three characteristics, the most important to Jewish character, are modesty, compassion, and chesed, and kindness. Sage is based on the acts of Hashem himself. Torah begins with chesed and ends with chesed. It begins with God clothing the naked, and it ends with him caring for the dead. Chesed, providing shelter for the homeless, food for the hungry, assistance to the poor, visiting the sick, comforting the mourner, a dignified burial for all, became constitutive of Jewish life. During the many centuries of exile and dispersion, Jewish communities were built around these needs. These were chevros, the societies for each of them. We don't have a chevra of poker, a chevra majan, a chevra of, what do we have? Our chevra kadisha? Hey, what are you doing Tuesday night? I thought of a fun activity for the chevra. Let's go bury the dead. Let's go do a tahara. I thought of a great activity for our chevra. Let's go do biker cholim, the chevra biker cholim. Chevra lomde mishnayis. The chevras in Jewish society, points Rabbi Sachs out, were not chevras of going to the movies. They weren't chevras of playing poker. They weren't chevras of these other activities. They were chevra kadisha was chesed. 
the definition of a chevra in Yiddishkeit are a group of people who they find their commonality is their desire, their willingness, their eagerness to do chesed. He traces it to 17th century Rome. Kedarko Bakodesh brings in all of this analysis. English language in 1535, Miles Coverdale published the first ever translation of the Hebrew Bible into English. It was when he came to the word chesed, he realized there was no English word to capture its meaning. It was then that to translate it, he coined the word loving kindness. Trace it to the 16th century, loving kindness. Rabbi Sachs has a whole piece about the role of chesed. I had so much I wanted to share about this, but I think this is also part of Rabbi Sachs' legacy, particularly to me. I can't believe we didn't get to all the other things I wanted to share. Rabbi Sachs probably was able to finish everything he wanted to say. I have yet to have learned that from him. But I think it's part of what makes Rabbi Sachs so special. Is this theme, is this essence, is this notion of Derech Eretz Kadma Torah. With all the scholarship, with all the brilliance, with all the published work, with all the degrees and the honorary degrees, with all the House of Commons and all the being knighted, with everything he achieved and he accomplished, he was a mensch. If you knew Rabbi Sachs, he was a quintessential mensch. And he was beloved by all for being that mensch. And more important than all the other accomplishments and achievements, some he was gifted by God and others he worked hard and toiled for, was simply surpassed by being a mensch, a Baal Chesed. He shared with me when he was the chief rabbi the work he did to free Agunas and orchestrating Chesed throughout the United Kingdom to be a mensch and to care about mensch lechkeit. And why was he so listened to? And why was he so heard? Chazal tells us, The words of the righteous of scholars are embraced, they are received when they are delivered softly and gently. And that's why the Torah Chazal caution us, be careful with your words, be careful how you deliver them. Others are biting, and others are sarcastic, and others are negative, and others seek to beat the Jewish people over the head. Others seek to point out everything we're doing wrong. But that wasn't Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs lifted us up with optimism and hope, with a vision, with positivity, with love, with sensitivity with seeing all the virtue and merit of the Jewish people, not what was missing. And I think that's why he did and does speak to us. Because Benachas, he spoke Benachas, and therefore Nishma'im. Because he spoke Benachas, that's why we are able to hear him. I'll end Rebbe Zusha. This is also in our parsha, by the way. Because Chazal tell us, we spend more Torah, more real estate, twice as much real estate, on the story of Eliezer getting this wife, than we do on some laws of the Torah. So Chazal note, because Yafas Sichasan shall Avde Avos, great is the casual conversation of the loyal servants of our matriarchs and patriarchs, even greater than the Torah of their children. What does that mean? It means we learn from the way that they interrelated interpersonally, from the derecherts of the way that they approached the entire world. Rabbi uh, Revolba in the Sefer on Chumash, Yurei Chumash, Revolba here writes, he says, it's like you go shopping. And you have all of these things that you collected. You got some fruits and vegetables. You bought some chicken. You bought some cheese and milk. How do you carry it all? How do you check out with it? How do you get it to your trunk? How do you get it home? You need a bag. Once upon a time, they used to give you a bag. Now they're environmentally friendly and you have to bring your own bag or pay for a bag. But you need a bag to put it in or a box to put it in. Otherwise, you can't bring it home. Says Revolba, Derecheretz is Kadmala Torah because if you don't come shopping with a bag, you have no way to collect all that Torah. The Derech is the vessel that holds all that Torah. And if you don't come shopping for Torah with a Derech bag, you have no way to carry it home. Derech is Kadma. You gotta come shopping with the bag before you go shopping. Otherwise you have nothing to put it in. Derech is Kadma la Torah. Yafa sichasan shal avde avos. And that was Rabbi Sachs. Benachas nishman. It was the Derech which was Kadma la Torah. So the Rebbe Rebzusha, we say this every morning. The Mishnah from Peah. We list all these wonderful things that you reap the benefit in this world and the next world. Kibra ve'aim, and visiting the sick, and burying the dead. And then that Mishnah ends with Talmud Torah. Talmud Torah keneged kulam. So the simple reading, the simple understanding, Talmud Torah keneged kulam means that while all of those activities are virtuous, beautiful, and great, Talmud Torah is the greatest of them all. Talmud Torah, learning, 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 is central core. It surpasses them all. The Heliger Rebbe Rebbe Zusha says, no. Talmud Torah Keneged Kula means Talmud Torah Keneged. The word Keneged means what? Opposite. Not against, opposite. 
It means Talmud Torah's Keneged Kulam. The Talmud Torah only has value when it stands opposite all those other activities. But if you learn Torah and you don't practice Kibbutz Avaim, you learn Torah, you don't visit the sick and you don't help, you don't comfort the mourner and you don't help the underprivileged and you don't stand up and fight for justice, then what's the value of your Talmud Torah? The Talmud Torah has to be Keneged Kulam. First learn and do all those things, and now the Talmud Torah is connected kulam. To me, part of Rabbi Sachs' great legacy is not only the scholarship, but is the chesed, is the benachas, is the sensitivity, is the menshelchkeit. It's who he was, it's who we are meant to be, vayakam, when we pass, he passes the baton, and we pick it up, and we take it, and we go from here. There was a lot more to share from him. Please, God, will have the opportunity for years to come. Have a fantastic day tomorrow morning. 8.15, finally we're back. 10 minutes of meeting Mrs. Sharm. Living with Amuna tomorrow morning is back to its regular time, 8.45. Please note, 8.45. Tomorrow night we're going by in the Bima with the great Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson for a conversation you do not want to miss.